Vivica Widow's Knock Knock, episode 29, narrated by Leo St. Paul. The Beckenridge Tower reached lofty heights. It had been the first time I'd crossed the courtyard since reading the details of the Freefall Massacre. The last time I had been inside it, I had been to talk to Ernest about the apparent suicide of his wife Alice. Alice Beckenridge, child killer, billionaire boy missing, had been some of my early articles on the family. The statue of Geoffrey Beckenridge, aka Gramps, was clean and well kept. I wondered what he would have thought if he had to learn that 59 of his clients and staff had been thrown from the window. Would he have let things get that far? The screen still showed the missing persons report. Tony's smiling face and a request for more information. It wasn't easy to get myself an audience with the granddaughter, but Elizabeth and I had mutual interests, and it was time you met in person to discuss them. Can I help you, sir? asked the main receptionist. Poised, polite and welcoming. I'd like to speak to Miss Beckenridge, please. The receptionist frowned. She took her task as gatekeeper to the tower very seriously. Do you have an appointment? No, I admitted, but I'm working on our missing persons case. She asked me to come in and catch her up. A text message. Come see me when you have the chance. That was what Elizabeth had written. The receptionist eyed me suspiciously. Name, please? I passed her an ID card. Sam Crusoe, Miss Beckenridge knows who I am. Just a minute, please. Taking care not to harm her manicured nails, the receptionist lifted the phone. Hi Mark, it's Marlene from front desk. I have a Sam Crusoe here to see Miss Beckenridge. She awaited the secretary's reply. Yes. Yes, of course, I'll let him know. She put the phone back down again. I'm sorry, sir, but Miss Beckenridge isn't in her office at the moment. May I take a message? Uh, no, I said. I'll catch her another time. The embalming fluid gave a clinical smell. Eugene Morrissey's workspace was chilled. Not just because of the nature of his calling in life, but because of the character he was as an individual. Like death, whenever he was present, people paid notice. Whimsical in the sense that he was never going to be escaped, so really he should just be embraced. Most people chose to run from him as long as they could. Eugene was a friendly man, but he was never overly familiar with his clients. It wasn't in his nature, nor was it in his work. The body of Robert Bobby Owen was laid out on the table like a king of old, lying in state. He was already dressed in his best suit Ronnie had chosen for him from the luggage he had brought with him. With expert hands and patient due diligence, the head injury that had taken his life was patched, powdered and presented as though the man was as good as new. He looked as though he could have been in his prime days, ready to address the masses. He looked as though he was ready to be sent back to the heavenly plane he descended from. The tailor observed the body. The son, Charles, was stood behind him. It's awful when death visits someone who still has so much to give. It's even more terrible when someone else brings that death of their own accord. He returned to Barry, Charles Owen inquired. What did he say? Eugene inspected the body closer. It's not for me to get involved in those kind of affairs. I'm merely here to pick up the pieces and kiss the foreheads of those who may otherwise be forgotten. What kind of a man is he? Charles asked, determined to get some kind of insight into the king who had slain his father. Quite reasonable in his way, Eugene responded. He pointed to a beautifully carved oak coffin. He asked that the deceased be treated with the utmost respect. His carriage into the father reaches was to be the best money could buy. That there isn't to your taste, he will give you the cost of anyone you like. The coin for the ferryman would be from his own pocket. The tailor drew Charles' attention to the lining of the casket, which was the finest velvet, 
The lining of the coffin itself was the thickest, purest gold. He said the man needn't have died, and on that I quite agree. Other than that, I'm not offering commentary. If I were to offer my two cents worth, it would make matters much messier than they already are. Charles inspected his father's coffin. It truly was the best quality. He may be an animal, Charles observed, but at least he has some manners. The tailor was in agreement with this too, but he didn't voice those opinions. Instead, he adjusted Bobby's tie. In every photo he had seen of Bobby, this tie was slightly skewed to the left. It was a small trait few people even noticed, but Eugene's job was not to decorate the deceased and strive for perfection. It was his job to make them worthy of memorial. People hunt for imperfection, son, Robert had told Charles. If all they can find is my tie, then I'm doing well. Charles couldn't help but smell when he noticed this little attention to detail. The Owen Inc. CEO had never been inside the pen auction house before. With its damp smell and rustic architecture, he couldn't say he was particularly impressed. The auction hall was empty, despite having many chairs laid out. It was empty, save for Chick himself and an auctioneer named Jeremy. Jeremy was loyal to the pens, but the lawmakers knew they needed a familiar face to smooth the transition. The bailiffs removing items from the auction house had caused quite a stir. Jeremy stepped in to object on behalf of Rita Penn, but somewhere along the line, Reginald must have gotten word to him to allow the final auctions to go ahead because Jeremy's mind seemed to have changed quickly. The auction items that day were not artifacts, nor were they ornaments or heirlooms. It was the very landmark of the city that had been seized by the lawmakers that were being placed on offer. Chick looked about himself. The time had now struck two o'clock and he was the only bidder. Jeremy took his podium with a cough. The dust of the wooden floors was starting to catch his throat. I guess we'll just take an offer, he surmised. Chick nodded. I would prefer to move things along. The doors opened. A suited man stepped inside and held the door open to allow entrance to a woman. Middle-aged, slim, well-dressed, her pink hair hung with a neat parting. Sorry I'm late, she said. Traffic into the city was a bitch and those narrow roads just aren't meant for limousines. I crossed the aisle. Her suited man waited by the door. She chose a seat next to the cabbie. Hello, Charles. So nice to see you. How are things? Charles raised his lip in a smile, but there was no humour on it. Elizabeth, he greeted. Always a pleasure. Elizabeth Beckenridge, interim CEO of Beckenridge Financial Firm, kept on her sunglasses. I believe the last time we saw one another was at a benefit for endangered birds or homeless dogs or some cause or other. Charles grinned. You were quiet and dogs okay, as I recall. Elizabeth shrugged. Well, if you can't indulge yourself, you've kind of missed the point of the party. Am I right? Anyway, things are different now that I have responsibility of the tower. I keep a clear head these days. It makes it easier when we see the sharks in the water. You're a fine adversary, Elizabeth, but it doesn't have to be that way. Your brother Ernest, God rest his soul, was a dear friend of mine. We worked together well for years. Elizabeth read through the auction item list that had been placed on the chair next to her. Ernest was a sweet man. He was everyone's friend. That was his problem. He was too busy trying to be friends with everyone. He didn't see all the little bites that were being taken out of him. When that maniac knock-knock girl took it upon herself to have fifty-nine of my clients and staff escorted from the tower via the window, where were his friends? They buggered off back to the great stakes and took the support with them. The cappy stroked his chin. He wasn't daunted by Elizabeth's challenge. The freefall massacre was a personal attack on my family. I had no choice but to protect our interests. 
Sure, Elizabeth nodded. If that shoe were on Ernest's foot, he would probably have done the exact same thing. Elizabeth finished scanning the list. She would no doubt have already made up her mind. Then we were agreed, the cappy put to her. It would be best to work together. No, Elizabeth scoffed. She raised an eyebrow. I'm not Ernest. You'll find I won't be bullied quite so easily. The cappy looked back to the podium where Jeremy was waiting again. Uh, just a moment, if you don't mind, sir, he called. To Elizabeth, he said, Your nephew, George, has already come into the fold. Very soon you'll have no choice. Elizabeth quietened. She gave it some thought, then she turned to the cappy. My nephew is a psychopath, torturing kittens, eating babies, the whole nine yards. He's cozying up with your boy, who, word on the street, says he has a cocaine problem that makes my Aunt Lisa's one nostril look like a charming little party piece. Before the cappy could respond, she patted his arm. Rumours, Charles. Only rumours. She spoke calmly. My point is, before that dynamo duo takes over what we've built, I have interest to protect too. And if we're speaking frankly, I must ask, why are you looking for the Baroness? He referred to the city-wide sales that she had funded for Tony McKinney. Why not? Liz replied. She's just a wacko old lady who disappeared from rehab. Her niece is gone, so what concern is that of yours? Chick frowned. I like you, Elizabeth. Don't treat me like a fool. Do not make an enemy of me when I'd much rather be friends. Elizabeth pouted. I perish the thought. The Baroness was in rehab with a friend of mine, George's old music teacher. You may remember him from such stories as kidnapping and the death of the weird hotel boy. He asked me ever so nicely to help find her, so I read up on the old showgirl. Your brother Jerry was quite a piece of work, wasn't he? Anyway... Her attitude struck a chord with me. Maybe I'm getting old, but I find myself feeling quite charitable these days. If you don't know where she is, then you'll agree finding her would smooth things over in the south. They liked her. I saw some old videos of her, and I quite like her too. You'll see the number on all the broadcasts, should you hear anything. In the meantime, let's get down to business. Our auctioneer here is sweating buckets. She patted his arm again. Plus she has the biggest, uh, checkbook. May the best bidder win. He addressed Jeremy. Go ahead, sir. Jeremy cleared his throat. Lot 0300, the Pen Auction House. The Pen Auction House was hot property. It was home to the Pen Tower, and if their sovereignty were to be given any credence, the auction house was their palace. Elizabeth didn't want it. It meant nothing to her, really. She had read the auction list and had set her sights on other prizes. But it was a prime city location. Some would argue it was the final stop before the tower. If she let it go into Chick Owen's hands, who knows where he would proceed on to next. He had his reasons for wanting it. He wanted it so badly. Elizabeth decided to let him sweat. Elizabeth Beckenridge had no need for the pen auction house, nor did have any loyalty to the pens themselves. In fact, hadn't it been the boys who had helped Tabitha commit the freefall massacre? If she even made one bid, it would be purely out of spite. Chick's family heirloom, his very name, was at stake. The pen stole the Captain Henry Henwin's compass. He would have that compass back in the estate where it belonged. To do that, he would have the auction house, no matter the cost. Jeremy cleared his throat. Reserve price is 2.3 million. Liz raised her board, 2.4. The cappy shook his head. She was plain spiteful after all. He knew she was deliberately drawing the price up because she wanted to clear him out before it reached some of the other items on the list. 2.5 million, he bid. 2.6, she returned. 
2.7. Going in hard. The Pen Palace would be in the hands of Owen Inc. no matter what. 2.8. Elizabeth's interest was waning. 3.2. The Cappy struck boldly. 3.7. Elizabeth countered. 3.9. The leap shows the Cappy's determination. Elizabeth lowered her board. She had let him sweat long enough, throwing money away on items she wasn't all that interested in. Jeremy waited for a counteroffer. It was not forthcoming. Going once. Going twice. The hammer slammed. The pen auction house was now property of one ink. Jeremy couldn't disguise his distaste, but he carried on. Lot 004. The knock-knock club. Another prime property that anyone with a good business mind could make work. It could become a trendy bar, revitalising the whole area. It could extend Owen reaching the south. With the boss lady gone, it was the perfect time to make the move. Elizabeth kept a poker face. The search for Tony had drawn her to the club. She looked at what the Baroness had been protesting against. She had learned the reasoning behind targeting her firm. She had met with Agnes. Her and her girls were all that were left. The knock-knock stood for something, and for that reason, it had to be kept away from the own hands. The reserve price is $1.2 million. That also includes the attached Clifton shelter used for the homeless. $1.5 million, Elizabeth began this time. $1.7 countered the cappy. $1.9 Beckenridge Tower was continuing its efforts. $2.1 the cappy was tentative. $2.5, $2.6, $2.7, $2.9, $3.2, The numbers continued to roll in. The club was well above its estimation. $4 million was Elizabeth's final offer. Sold. The knock-knock club was now in the hands of Beckenridge Firm. Jeremy had no time to pause for thought. More items were available. Lot 005, Harbour House. The unique rehabilitation clinic had caused quite a stir of late. It had been the cause of scandal when its resident 0109 went missing. Control of the facility could mean a final shutdown to the rumours of the Owens being responsible for that disappearance, coupled with the fact it was very profitable. It was Elizabeth's interest in finding the truth behind Tony's disappearance that pricked her ears. Reserve price is 3.2, Jeremy explained. 4.5 million, Elizabeth jumped in right away. She didn't care she was exposing her hand too soon. Charles shook his head. He wasn't even willing to combat it. Sold. Harbour House was also now a Bickenridge firm holding, but the dragon had reared and exposed a weakness in its belly. Stealing determination could break those scales. Lot 006, Pettywick School. The Salinger family had been in control of the school for generations. Louis Salinger was a friend of Ernest's. Pettywick had educated every Bickenridge since its founding. Even Gramps had walked the halls as a boy. Even George has his time there. Lewis was a complete moron and had been caught by a lawmaker forensic accountant skimming money from the school funds, it seemed. The lawmakers dug their claws in deeper and discovered the Salingers had been doing it for years. It was now a seized property, but that didn't mean the children had to suffer. It was still the finest school in the city. Chacon had no reason to want it, but it was home to the Beckenridge Wing, donated by Ernest. Charles' poker face was indecipherable. Reserve price is 6.7 million. It was a big property and going cheap. Elizabeth was likely to fight tooth and nail for it, but when the dragon had exhausted all of its flaming breath, it made it easier to cut the beast's head off. 7 million, the first own bid was tentative. 10 million, the Beckenridge bid was a strike. 20 million, games were no longer being played. 25 million, the flames roared. 30 million, the shine of the steel returned. Elizabeth broke the bidding. 
Oh, come on, Charles, what use do you have for a school? Chekhoon said nothing. The dragon was down. Going once, going twice, said Jeremy. Forty-five billion. The dragon was not done. Fifty million. Neither was Owen Inc. Fifty-five million. The tower was beginning to shake. Seventy million. There was still much to do. Elizabeth had no choice but to bow out. It was a personal fondness that would have kept her fighting for the school, but she couldn't waste what firepower she had on personal fondness. Going once, going twice, sold. The finest school in a shady city was now to have a great state's facelift. Going to ruin the damn thing, Elizabeth grumbled to herself. Between the Charterhouse in Felton and now Pettywick, the ones had way more power in Felton than she liked. There wasn't time to rest on it, though. There was more. Lot 006, Coldrick Park, from the city main entrance to the mid-east exit. For the cappy, it was the perfect addition to the auction house. It held the area before the Falls Park building where the pens were normally resident. Also contained some sports fields used by Capasso. Elizabeth always loved that park. Well, she had spent an afternoon there once or twice. If Petowick was going to be used to push into Felton, then the park could be used to flood the Owens out of City Main. Reserve price is 11.5 million. 11.5 million, Bickenridge began with the reserve. No one was leaping in for an area that was essentially filled with drug dealers and prostitutes. 11.6 million Charles Owen was also being nonchalant. 12.1 million Owen budget was depleting. He wanted that property, but he couldn't be silly about it. He bowed out gracefully. Sold. Coldridge Park, from the city main entrance to the mid-east exit, now belonged to Baconridge. Lot 007, St Michael's Cathedral. The parish hadn't been the same since Reverend Owen gave up his flock. No verifiable evidence in the rape of hundreds of little girls, but the protests that had gone on outside it, led by the Baroness, had made it a very interesting spot indeed. There may have been no evidence then, but what about underneath the cathedral floorboards? Structures could speak volumes. What would that old church have to say of the confessions that Reverend himself had to make? Proceedings were ending. As far as elder brother Charles Owen was concerned, it was time to close the cathedral for good. Throw it to the Fultons as a chew toy for all they cared. With the cathedral gone, the talk of Jerry would quiet to whispers before eventually fading away. Reserve price, 10.3 million, Jeremy informed them. He wasn't given much time before the first bid was raised. 10.4, Owen Inc. threw their hat into the ring first. 10.5, the Beckenridge dragon roared. 11, 12, the bidding went on. It was starting to overreach what Chick had intended. The cabbie took a sharp intake of breath. Elizabeth spotted what was to come next. She was going to have to cut her losses. Sold. The cathedral was going back to the Owen family. The skeletons in the Reverend's vestry damned to hell. Final lot for today, announced Jeremy. Lot 008, Chamberlain Docks. That was it. The dragon was ready to breathe every last flame it had. Seized by lawmakers due to the trafficking, soliciting and illegal trading, Harbour House would be far more used to Elizabeth with the docks. If they belonged to Owen Inc, the facility could very well be of no use at all. Chamberlain was the main access route to Halffield, and the prime spot for spreading wealth and expanding reach. Owen Inc knew this too. Returning to the kingdom with the dragon's head would mean little without it. Charles had the auction house. He had the school. He had his brother's cathedral. He could afford to take his time and let the dragon strike first. The cathedral didn't matter when Elizabeth had the knock-knock club. Whilst the club still existed, the Owens could still be driven from Colford. 
They may bite chunks from the city main, but they would be enclosed by the pests from the shanties and their main competitors in Felton. However, to close them in completely, Beckenridge Firm needed the whole Chamberlain docks. The reserve price, £20.6 million. It includes the ferryway brand and terminal, the allotted sea area and surrounding businesses. Elizabeth turned to Charles. Be my guest. Chick smiled and shook his head. Ladies first. Thirty million, the first blow struck. Forty million, the Owen counter. The dance continued and the bites were taken. Fifty, the tower would not concede. Seventy, Owen Inc. was not walking away. One hundred, two hundred, four hundred, five hundred. Damn it, Liz, don't be stupid, Chick thought inwardly. Six hundred, seven hundred, seven fifty, eight hundred, eight two five. You know as well as I do, the docks aren't worth anywhere near that, Elizabeth thought. Give up, Charles, you're not having this one. The new algorithms at the firm are going to have to work extra hard. All hands on deck for the accounts team and the traders. The cappy made no further bid. The docks were a power play, but not enough to exhaust his funds completely. He would find another way. Going once, going twice, Jeremy halted. The phone he had set on the table before him bleeped. He checked it. We have a new bidder, he announced. The bid for the docks now stands at $1.2 Chick and Elizabeth looked to each other. Both were equally as perplexed. Elizabeth couldn't go any higher. Not with the costs of other properties, not without having to close the exchange for a few days, causing a knock-on effect for the firm. Going once. Going twice. Sold. The bidding was closed and neither Owen Inc. nor Beckenridge Firm cleaned Chamberlain docks. Chick and Elizabeth stepped outside to the hustle and bustle of City Main. They shook hands. Congratulations, said the cappy. I do so admire your Moxie. Things are so much more interesting with a worthy opponent. Elizabeth slipped her phone from her bag. Thank you, Charles. You fight dirty, but I've never minded a bit of mud in my face. They separated. Chick watched as Elizabeth put her phone to her ear. Her walk started to become brisk. Where is she parked? he asked his driver. South Street was the answer as the cappy slipped into the town car. Give me Ronnie. I need to find out who the hell bought Chamberlain. Meanwhile, the Beckenridge security were in a rush to keep up with their mistress. Mark, she was saying on the phone, I need you to go down to the exchange right away. Title deeds are changing for Chamberlain Docks. Watch them and message me the name of the new owner the minute they update, and I mean stand with your finger on the button. Seconds are a delay too long. I'm on my way back now. I was out bid for the docks, and I need to know who else in the city has that kind of money. Inside, Jeremy signed over the deed of purchase. Congratulations, Miss Harvester, he said. Julia smiled. All the petty squabbles were nothing to her when she had the route to expansion. Owen Inc., Beckenridge Firm, even the Penn and Fullerton names knew the Harvester brand was growing, but that nice, sweet presence in homes up and down the city had grown far larger than they'd realised. Julia was a nice girl. And now if the Beckenridges or the Owens wanted to reach outside of Colford, they were going to have to ask her nicely. By day, Walden's in City, Maine, was a wine bar serving expensive drinks to young people with important jobs in the city. It was a meeting place for young professionals looking to escape their responsibilities and drink alcohol in the afternoon. By evening, it was something quite different. Decadence, debauchery, licentious behaviour, but when 28-year-old Beckenridge accountant Raymond stepped inside, it was quiet and calm. Lighting reminded him of the rectory room at the Pettywig where he had gone to school. It had a calming essence. Light jazz music played. Good afternoon, Raymond. Barman Gill greeted. A little pick-me-up after a long day, then? A sherry, please, Gill, Raymond ordered. 
He had been locked in the offices of Beckenridge Tower since 6am working on new algorithms they had been given. He felt he had earned his wind down at the end of the day. Gil passed the sherry, holding to a perfectly curved glass. Raymond took a seat at the bar, intent on having some quiet time. Liz Beckenridge had stationed herself in the accounting department, and despite them all working hard to make the new algorithms proper, she was in a mood about something. Although Raymond couldn't remember her presence being a headache even before she took her brother's place as CEO. You go home, Raymond, Ernest had said to him once. If you have a headache, you go home in case you're coming down with something. Go and get better. With a similar complaint to Elizabeth, she replied, Headache? What are you, four years old? This is your job, Raymond. If you haven't finished running these numbers by the close of business, you'll experience what a true headache is. Raymond slipped the sherry. Maybe the accountant's department needed Lizzie's sharpened tongue. After all, the tower was now performing at the best rates it ever had, and the accounts team on the 18th floor were what held the tower up. He savoured the sherry's sweetness. His eyes were drawn to a woman sat alone in the corner. She was a little younger than him, from what he could tell. Her face wasn't heavenly made up like a lot of women who'd came to Alden's. She had a natural, earthy beauty. When he caught her eye, she smiled and coyly dropped her eyes to the phone she held in her hand. Raymond absorbed the image of the green dress she wore. The green swirled with the watery blue of her eyes in the utmost hypnotic embrace. Raymond lifted his glass and boldly opted to join her at the table. Waiting for someone? he asked. She looked up and smiled at him as he took a seat. A lot of women could be put off by over-eagerness, so Raymond leaned back to prevent his body from being too much in her space. Just thought I'd stop by, she replied. The noise of the city was starting to get to me. You're not from around here. She shook her head to the negative. She looked shy as though she shouldn't be talking to strange men in bars. I live on a farm, so it's all quite a change of scenery for me. So what brings you all the way down here? Raymond asked. Her soft ruby lips stretched into a grin. I'm collecting meat, she said. She giggled at the coy euphemism. Raymond found himself doing the same thing. Raymond lifted his glass and took another sip. I'll have to keep an eye on you then, he teased. The farm girl watched him. Probably should. What's your name? he asked. She reached her hand out to him. He shook it. Julia, she said. Julia Harvester. Oh, I know the Harvester brand really well. I work for the Beck firm and we're just dying to have you on board. Raymond could see her eyes glaze over. It wasn't shop talk she'd come for. It was a more personal interaction she was after. My name's Raymond. Uh, may I buy you a drink? I think I've had my fill for now, Raymond, but if you are so familiar with the city, perhaps you could show me around. I'm sure you can look after me and see that I get home safely. Raymond swallowed what was left of his sherry. I'd be honoured, he said. My friends all say that I make an excellent tour guide. His eyes fell down to her breast, to her slim stomach. May I ask which designer you got that fetching dress from? Julia took note of her dress as though it were the first time she had noticed she was even wearing it. Oh, this, she declared. This was no designer. I made it myself. Earthy, modest. Jill was like a cool glass of water on a baking hot day. His parents would certainly like her much more than Tatiana. I'm good with my hands, she finished. At this, Raymond leaned in. His empty sherry glass now rested under him, causing a shimmer of light to dance upon his chin. So what parts of the city would you like to see? Julia stood. She reached her hand out and took his. I'd like to see all that it has to offer, she stated. She pulled him to his feet. She led him by the hand from Walden's wine bar. The barman didn't pay attention to the young woman Raymond had chosen to leave with. 
Perhaps he should have. Juliet Harvester liked Beckenridge Manor, although it wasn't intended to be. It felt as open as the Harvester farmhouse. It had a cool draught blowing through it. The walls were thick. The ceiling was high. I love you, Julia, George Beckenridge stated. He kissed her cheek heartily. She discreetly wiped the saliva from her face as he danced towards his bed where Raymond had been stripped and laid to rest under the sheets. He wasn't dead yet, but the Beckenridge accountant wouldn't be throwing any resistance towards them any time soon. He is quite sweet, isn't he? she replied. George collected a comb from a chest of drawers. He dropped to his knees beside the bed and started to comb Raymond's hair into a neat side parting. It looks just like him, George said excitedly. I, I said so, didn't I? It looks just like him, but there's something not quite right. He's not wearing glasses. Mr. Bain wore glasses. Julia reached into the pocket of her coat and produced a pair of spectacles. She passed them to George, and with a grin on his face, he slipped them onto Raymond's face. He chuckled. <laughs> That's better. I'm glad he pleases you. I do try my best. George stroked Raymond's face gently. He looks like him. I'd like to pretend it's him. You don't mind that, do you, Mr. Baines? Are you glad to be back with your best pupil? Julia wasn't listening. Instead, her attention was brought to the stuffed animal that was sat on a shelf looking down. When she picked him up, George's eyes locked on her. He watched closely as Julia stroked the toy's fur. His name is Cecil, George explained. I know I'm a man, but I still like to have him close by. Julia cradled Cecil delicately. We all have things from childhood we like to hold on to now, don't we? When I was five, there was a little boy in my school named Cecil. He was pale, skinny, and completely bald. I didn't ask why, I just thought he didn't want any hair. All the other children looked at him like he was strange. They all looked at me the same way too, so we became friends. Cecil was always the first to say hi to me in the morning. We, we called each other every night when we weren't sleeping over. We played for hours in this very room. I can still hear him laughing sometimes. The music room was where he liked best. I still have the toy train he left here. One day Cecil just stopped coming to school. When I called his mum and said he couldn't come to the phone, my mum wouldn't let any of the drivers take me to see him. A week later, Miss Matheson, her teacher, told me that Cecil had been sick for some time and he had died. And he couldn't come to the phone because, because he was dead. And I never got the chance to say goodbye to him. So when I saw that toy and I realised his name was Cecil, I had to have him. We were going to be best friends forever, just like we promised. I monitor word with the sound of a baby's cry. That's my niece Vicky, he informed the farm girl. Catherine, my sister, has gone to a party. She asked me to look after her. Will you check on her for me? She's in the nursery, just, just down the hall. Julia laid Cecil back onto his spot on the shelf. His beetle-black eyes were watching Raymond in the bed. The fur around the stuffed mouse's neck was sticky and matted where he had been held so often. Will you be having a sleepover with me and Mr. Baines? asked the billionaire boy. I'm afraid not, she returned. I'll check on the baby and then I have to go. George's attention was now back on Raymond. He kissed his cheek. He knocked the glasses askew. Julia closed the door behind her. George dropped his trousers and stepped out of them. He removed the white briefs he was wearing too and climbed into the bed with Raymond. Wrapping himself around the counter, he kissed him again. Good night, Mr. Baines, he said. Julie could hear the baby cry out as she approached the nursery. The door had been left ajar, 
and see the nursery was calmly lit with soft night lights flashing stars and planets on the walls and ceiling. Uncle George had left some classical music playing softly on the old stereo. It lulled baby Vicky to sleep and she'd only stirred again when it stopped. Normally her uncle would sing to her when the music stopped. Aunt Liz would sing to her too, but that was only to distract her when she was getting changed or dressed. Lizzie's voice was bouncy and fun. George's soft voice always came through the darkness when it was time to close her eyes and bid farewell to the day. It was always gentle, almost at a whisper. Tonight it was neither. Victoria Beckenridge, third in line for the Beckenridge tour, looked up from her cradle with wide, engaging eyes. She had large brown ones like Uncle George. Julia had never met Catherine. Maybe she had the same. The baby had been tucked perfectly for sleep. Her helpless little body had no room to wriggle. Gah, she explained when she saw Julia. Julia lifted her from the cradle and into her arms. She carried her across to an armchair by the window. It offered a view of the manor's lawns. She sat and settled Victoria into her arms, loosening her blanket so she could reach out. Hello, Vicky, said Julia softly. Uncle George is busy right now, she caressed a little girl's cheek. You have to go back to sleep now, Buttercup. It's very late for you. Vicky's lips twitched into a smile, but her eyes started to get heavy as Julia began to rock her. With it being Friday afternoon, Beckenridge Tower exchange was hectic. Everything was beginning to wind down for the weekend closures. I've got 3.4. I've got 6.5. Going down. It's time to pull out. Hurry. To pass the main reception of Beckenridge Tower, you would find yourself on the stock holding floor. It was called the Execution Hall because it was where all the deals were cut and a lot of financial fates were decided. Elizabeth was crossing the hall, keeping a personal eye on the weekend closures. Liz, someone patted her shoulder for attention. She turned to be faced with Dr. Gregory Winslow. Before the doctor could offer any further greeting, Lizzie's secretary, Colin, stepped in the way. Can I help you, sir? he asked with a skill. Elizabeth rolled her eyes. It's fine, Colin. Just carry on. Colin moved back onto the floor to continue to check on traders and their final executions for the week. After the bidding, those numbers were more important than ever. I'm busy, doctor, so I'm just here to have my weekly little chat with George, so don't mind me. Is he in his office? Winslow had been offering some tuition to George to prepare him for business school at Felton. He had also been talking the billionaire boy through his kidnapping, the death of his parents, and the boy Kenneth. And the truth, the doctor's influence was doing some good as far as Elizabeth could tell. There were moments when he even behaved like a real human being. Liz Beckenridge wasn't so naive that she didn't realise Winslow was only taking her nephew under his wing because he had ulterior motives. No one liked to have to deal with George. Even his own father sighed relief when the music teacher took him away. Like many others, Winslow probably saw him as weak. The doctor would see George as a way of gaining power himself in the tower. Sure, George would be sat on the CEO chair, but it would be Winslow pulling the strings. George's mouth would snap open and close, but it would be Winslow's words he would be speaking. He would sound just like a real boy. Elizabeth had no intention of ever letting George take control of the firm. She wouldn't risk him ruining Gramps' legacy by acting like a cruel child with a magnifying glass. But if the doctor was able to hold on to these strings in the meantime and have him behave, she had no reason to stop him. After all, it had been Winslow who talked George out of placing himself in the penthouse office. I think the Booker office may be more appropriate for you at this stage, the doctor had said. George had scowled at first, until the doctor pointed out that it had actually been from the Booker office that the free-fall massacre had occurred. Yes, Elizabeth agreed. He's upstairs. He'll be expecting you. Splendid, Winslow cheered. He departed and allowed Elizabeth to return to the brokers. 
The booker office was still on the top floor, but it just didn't quite reach the lofty heights of the penthouse. As the elevator rose through the tower, Winslow began to wonder how he would look atop the tower with the control of the firm. Perhaps one day, he chastised himself, one thing at a time. He didn't fear George Beckenridge. He was well aware of his psychopathic tendencies. After all, it had been he who had signed the death certificate for his mother. He also handled the body extracted from the lawns of Beckenridge Manor. He had talked extensively with Vincent Baines when he was one of Harbour House residents. Vincent detailed George's behaviour and the fear that it had struck in the man who had taken the boy away thinking he was protecting him. Dr. G. Winslow wasn't afraid of George Beckenridge because Harbour House had seen it all. Not a psychiatric institute, but a rehabilitation clinic, and that included rehab for all kinds of trauma. Good afternoon, Doctor. He was recognised immediately by George's appointed secretary, a smiley young girl named Michelle. She too didn't seem to fear George, but that was through naivety bordering on stupidity. Mr. Beckenridge is expecting you. You can go right through. Thank you, my dear, he said. He found George sat at his desk. The doctor's pride swelled when he noticed the business school textbooks he had bought the young CEO to be opened on his desk. George himself was dressed appropriately in a suit. The tie had a leaf pattern on it. It was a little more whimsical than anything he would have directed the boy to, but at least he was starting to find his own style. I was going to call, George began, but I thought I'd like to see you face to face. Winslow took a seat. Something the matter? Are you having trouble with your studies? I'm fine, he replied. I just decided I don't like you. Winslow wasn't sure he heard correctly, but he maintained his composure and prepared to work through one of George's outbursts. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, was the doctor's response. Was it something I said? No, I just don't like you. Winslow licked his lips. That is a shame. We were such good friends. No, George barked. I never did like you. This was going to be one of his outbursts after all. This was going to take a bit more calming. Well, whatever upsets you, I'm sure we can discuss it. No, George stated, softer this time. I want you to leave and never come back. I don't want to see you again and I won't be giving any money to Harbour House. Winslow stayed steady. May I ask what has brought you to this decision? Surely after all we've been through, you can offer me that much? George reached into the desk drawer and pulled out an expensive bottle of port and sat it on the table. It still had a gift bow on it from when Winslow gave it to him. It hadn't been opened. Take this back, George ordered. Please, Winslow steadied his voice. Tell me what it has come to this. I'm just going to spend all evening worried about you. I don't need you, said the billionaire boy. You're just using me. Now who put that idea in your head? His tone snapped a lot more than he intended it to. At first he thought it had been Elizabeth, but she had little to no influence over her nephew, and if she did feel the way about the doctor, she wouldn't have let him anywhere near him in the first place. Who told you that, George? From the adjoining room where a meeting of investment bankers were taking place, emerged Julia Harvester. I didn't mean to interrupt. Winslow stood. He skilled at the farm girl. You, he snarled. You did this? Did what? she asked. Tell you to take your poison and spit it in someone else's ear? No, Gregory. Why would I do that? We're still friends. It's George here who says he doesn't like you. He's had enough of your pathetic, waning voice. He's his own man. He's big enough to make that choice. Who am I to say what happens in his tower? George was glaring at the doctor. Julia was smiling. You don't and never will have a say in what happens at Beckenridge Firm, 
George stated. Neither will you, Winslow mused bitterly. Julia stepped behind George and rested her hands on his shoulders. She was the one pulling the strings now. Leave, George insisted. And when you do, take a route past Harvester Farm and remove every trace that you have ever been there. Wipe every surface your wrinkled ass has touched and go. He reached into the drawer again and this time drew out a long rusted key. This is the key for the Browning House. I loved it there. It was my home for ten years. A friend at CPD gave me it. You can have it. Go there and be forgotten about. And if I don't? George slammed his fists on the table. You do it. You do what I say. Julia squeezed his shoulders. The strings were tugged. It was the puppeteer who spoke this time. Don't test me, Gregory. I sprayed for vermin like you before. How dare you, the doctor roared. Julia raised her hand. Smash! The bottle of port exploded. Gunfire. Why hadn't Winslow noticed the window was open? George was grinning excitedly. Buddy Owen has his eye on you, he cheered. Buddy's my brother, and we're brothers for life, bro. Owen Inc., Beckenridge Farm and the Harvester brand coming together would never be matched. It would be impossible for anyone to compete against that kind of influence in the shady city. If anyone can make that happen, it would be Julia. There was only one person who could step in the way of that, and it was Elizabeth. But who was she going to listen to? The man who allowed the music teacher who considered a friend to be treated abysmally by George whilst he was in his care, or the sweet farm girl who not only had her nephew dancing to a pleasant tune, but also spent the night before cradling her niece to sleep when the child's own mother abandoned her. Not to mention, it had been Elizabeth who had raised the interest in Harvester Farm. It had held George for ten years, and it still had its uses. Winslow fled the tower, taking the Browning House key. If it had held George for ten years, it still had its uses. He ran to his car. Every step he took, every corner he turned, he could feel an own scope on him. Even when he got into his car and drove away, he still didn't feel safe. But he could be anywhere. Julia clasped George's head affectionately and planted a kiss on the crown. He giggled. She crossed to the open window, leaned out and took a breath of fresh icy air. She looked across to the Weir Hotel. She didn't know exactly where Buddy had placed his nest. She wouldn't be able to see him with her naked eye, but she brought her fingertips to her lips and blew a kiss. Either way, he would still be watching. End of episode.